save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. Have you ever looked deep into the eyes of an animal and felt entirely known? Often the connections we share with non-human animals represent our safest and most reliable relationships with unique and profound opportunities for healing through periods of hardship. This is the focus today with my guests Philip Tedeschi and Molly Jenkins from the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work Institute for Human-Animal Connection, also known as IHAC, I-H-A-C. In their newest book, Transforming Trauma, they examine how our relationships with animals can help build resiliency and transform the healing of trauma. Tedeschi and Jenkins have produced the go-to source book on the role of animal-assisted interventions for children and adults coping with the debilitating effects of psychological trauma. Today, we're going to discuss how Transforming Trauma, the book, fills an important gap in the AAI, Animals Assisted Interventions, Anthrozoology, Social Work, and Literature. Uh, Philip has been on the program before, so welcome back, Philip. Thank you. It's nice to have you here, and welcome, Molly. This is your first time joining us. Yes, thanks so much for having us. You're welcome. It's it's a pleasure. This is going to be a very interesting discussion today. So um, why don't we start with Philip? Why don't you give us just a recap of a bit of your background and how this book came about? And then Molly, um, same as you, since we haven't heard from you before. Yeah, sure thing. Sure thing, Ellie. Uh, so, well, well, it's so great to be back and it's nice to hear hear your voice again. Um, so my name is, is Phil Tedeschi, and my primary activity is as a faculty member at the Graduate School of Social Work, and I'm also the executive director of the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, which is housed right in, this, in, in the Graduate School of Social Work uh, on the campus of the University of Denver. And our institute originally you know, was formed to explore the depth of our relationship with animals really in almost every possible context. And so our Institute's mission overall is to elevate the value of animals in the living world and explore the relationship that people have with other animals and with the environment. And as we've talked about many times, uh, Ellie, you know, the connection between people, animals, and the environment, sometimes referred to as One Health, these are interrelated. And really the work that we are doing uh, at the Institute every day focuses in that area. And this particular book is is a dimension of that uh, exploration. So we really look at these issues. um, And what makes our work, I think, unique um, is looking at it through the lens of social sciences or even the social framework and we apply this through um, you know through that knowledge in terms of trying to determine uh, really what the evidence shows us and also applying a new ethical framework that allow us to really re-examine how to have 
better relationships with other animals. So that's really kind of where we started. So um, at the Institute, you both compiles research data on the effects of this animal-assisted intervention, and you also apply it in the real world as well as sociologists or social workers. Yes, yes that's right. We have a, we have a whole research department that, that uh, looks at all different kinds of research questions related to human and animal uh, connection, both focused on therapeutic and kind of the health-promoting benefits of animals, but also animals' relationships in our communities and even conservation-related issues, human-animal conflict issues, as we've talked about in past uh, shows and things like that. So we're really interested in all of it. At the heart of it, what we're really interested in is having people rethink their relationships and the importance of their relationship uh, with other animals. And then the other big part of our work there is teaching graduate students. So we're, we're also engaged in academics, um, you know, community uh, in kind of outward-facing uh, work with the communities, but really at the heart of our work is training the next generation of social scientists to uh, to think about animals in relation to their to their work. This is exciting, and just for our listeners' sake, uh, go back and listen to the previous episodes with Philip, and um, uh, also an episode with Colorado Link, and a lot of the previous work that this conversation is building upon in terms of new modalities and therapies is the relationship between human uh, domestic abuse and animal abuse and how those have been found to be closely related. So we're not going to so much get into that specifically today. I'm sure we'll cover some of it, uh, but those episodes will give our listeners a great foundation as to the transformation that's been going on in the Institute itself. So, Molly, give us a little background on you. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having us on the show. Um, My name is Molly Jenkins. I've known Phil for a number of years. I actually was a student of his at the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, so I'm a social worker. Um, and I currently serve as an affiliated faculty member and adjunct professor at the Graduate School of Social Works Institute. So um, I am so excited to be a part of this book. Um, Phil and I have worked very closely on it for about three and a half years um, and working with our contributors. Um, my background includes um, a focus on veterinary medicine. I've also served in a research capacity um, for American Humane Association. Uh, where I was really focused on the impact of animal-assisted interventions for children with cancer and their families. Um, And part of that was also looking at what impact do these interventions have on the therapy dogs that visit with these vulnerable children and families. So that was a great experience early on in my career, um, and I'm happy to have returned to the Institute to work with Phil and the entire team um, there. So, yes, I, you know, as a social worker, my main passion Um, is social justice, and I feel that, you know, social workers are uniquely positioned within the animal-assisted intervention field to really look at social justice issues within our relationships with animals. Um, So that's a a primary focus and interest of mine. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much. Oh, great. That's wonderful, because this is an often overall uh, overlooked part of 
human and non-human animal relationships, period, whether it be wildlife or our companions or therapy animals. We talk about research, data, numbers, populations, genetics, but we forget where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is in the social context of everyday life. So let's um, thank you for the background and the catch up on that. Um, let's let's get into it. Um, the new book, Transforming Trauma, a Resilience and Healing Through Our Connections with Animals. And it's by Philip and Molly, their editors and co-authors, along with a lot of other contrib- contributors. So let's let's talk about how the book emerged out of the institute. Yeah, that's uh, Molly. Let's let's do this together. We we probably were brought brought to this. You know, in some ways, it felt like it was something that just had to happen. And I think the reason it had to happen is that we at uh, at the University of Denver and out of our institute routinely hold major learning events. One of those events is a conference series called Animals on the Mind. In fact, we have our Animals on the Mind 4.0 coming up this coming year, this spring in May, um, uh, May 14th and 15th on the campus of the University of Denver. That'll be looking at at the research dimensions of um, humane communities and diversity and inclusion uh, and welfare issues of human animal environmental consideration. So we'd love to have any of your listeners um, come join us for that. Or this book emanated out of one of those particular conferences called Transforming Trauma. It was held at the University of Denver in 2015 um, and sponsored by our institute. And that particular conference uh, was an effort to describe the uh, current and new emerging research in the role that animals play in trauma recovery. Um, And we, during that conference, Um, selected some specific areas, because when we use the term trauma, we could be talking about many different types of trauma for the organization quantifying specific types of trauma. We focused in that particular conference on three different areas, one being child developmental trauma, which is really defining child abuse and child maltreatment, the second being what we sometimes refer to as post-traumatic stress uh, or post-traumatic stress disorder, which is an, which can occur as a feature of many different types of trauma. But most recently, we've heard a lot about that as a feature of military uh, trauma experience. And then the third area that we've been very interested in looking at are, are really crisis response or even mass casualty and or natural disasters. Uh, that are are much more frequently occurring in our society and are posing major trauma recovery challenges. So those became the three areas. And um, really at the the heart of this focus is there's a lot going on in this area. So we were enthusiastic about this topic. You know, this was even, you know, almost four years ago now. A lot has occurred even since then. But we were really interested in it because there has been so much new evidence that our relationship with animals is an important part of our capacity for for functioning and, and for human health and overcoming trauma. So that's really where I think our, our origins started. But there's many other reasons. And Molly, I don't know if you want to talk about some of the other um, impetus behind our, our interest in this area. 
I think within this conference, we also heard from many of the attendees as well as the presenters that trauma is actually a pretty difficult condition to treat. Um, there are a lot different. There's a lot of different forms of trauma that are resistant to treatment. And so there's been a real push to look for treatment options or treatment modalities that can complement traditional trauma treatment. And as Phil just mentioned, animals um, and animal-assisted interventions have really gained a lot of interest um, in the past several years. Um, and more and more people are seeing the real potential that animals can play for people that have been diagnosed with trauma. Veterans is, is certainly a very... Um, common population that researchers and practitioners are looking at in this area. Um, it's also, you know, really urgent to find these effective treatment options because there's a high rate of suicide associated with people who have PTSD and other forms of trauma. And so people are really, really interested and passionate about looking for effective models um, to help people. And animals certainly have been on top of mind. So that was really a theme that came out of the conference as well is that this is needed, this is something that is taking off, and there's a great deal of interest in it. Um, and then I would just say that, you know, we heard from many of the conference attendees, um, including our students, um, about their own personal experiences with animals and how animals have helped them overcome their own trauma histories. Um, and that's really almost an impetus for a lot of students to come to the university is because they have experienced firsthand when an animal has really saved their lives and made and made life livable for them. And so they're really passionate about this. And so we knew that this was a great topic for a book and certainly one that, that we feel really passionate about. It absolutely, absolutely is. Uh, when we talk about trauma, and you both said it, it is a difficult topic to kind of define and localize in terms of who's doing what and what aspect. So just a question out of curiosity, does the Institute and your students and the training in terms of social workers, do you find often that there's just this general great grief solastalgia, you know, the form of mental or existential distress caused by environmental change in our rapidly changing world? That's such a great question, Ellie, and I think you and I have talked about solastalgia before. Um, I think the way I would respond to that is by referencing one of the, a, a couple of different things, but one of the key uh, frameworks or theoretical frameworks that Molly and I try to define throughout the book is a model that we refer to as bioaffiliative safety. And even the cover of the book itself, which is an, uh, an artist um, rendering a, a print done by an Indonesian artist, and she named that particular picture safe. And I think really at the heart of this book, and, and kind of in almost every chapter, one of the messages that we get is that our treatment of other living you know, beings, including environmental and ecological systems, um, has consequences for how we ultimately will function and, and has direct implications for human physical and psychological health. So this idea of bioaffiliative safety might be defined in some ways. We have you know different ways that we talk about it in the book, but at the heart of it, well, the way we would define it, is that a, a healthy and thriving uh, living individual 
um, informs our own capacity for our own health and well sense of well-being, and that that information is available to us not just in forms of cognition and emotion, but almost precognitively. So, in other words, it influences our body through uh, through almost information that we even before we would form a thought, we would have that information available to us. Now, this is the way the world and living systems interact and work with one another. So, you know, if we're seeing, uh, you know, an individual harmed, if we're in the presence of an individual being hurt or harmed, we should experience and will experience distress, whether we, you know, choose to recognize it or not. In our more macro applications, when we're watching, you know, our oceans being polluted or our ecological systems harmed or our forests um, deforested, you know, things like that, we believe that these are also likely direct implications for bioaffiliative safety. Um, now, the way that ultimately would be relevant to trauma recovery is that somebody's body and brain who has been trained to, in many cases, um, you know, respond to being in a threatening environment or have learned to live in an abusive home or have you know, managed um, to cope with traumatic experience in one form or another, one of the ways that they can recover is by being in the presence of other healthy living beings and systems. And this is really at the heart of it. So, you know, so as we start to ask questions, what happens when somebody has been hurt by other human beings? Um, one of the dilemmas is that human therapists have limitations because that trust or that capacity for relational trust has been harmed. But through bioaffiliative safety, we can reestablish a uh, really kind of a therapeutic beachhead by which that person can begin to retrain their brain, retain, retrain their physiology and their, their body and, their, and even their capacity for uh, wanting to get better. So when you're in the presence of non-human animals that are thriving, interestingly enough, what the science is showing us is it gives persons reasons to want to get better. And uh, this becomes a, a foundational dimension to, to how we think about that. So, you know, to summarize, I guess, is that our treatment of the planet falls into these categories, right, around, around ways that we will be either able to, to be well or not well, depending on how we treat other living things. That was really wonderful. Thank you. Um, highly informative right there. So let's bring it down to the meat of it, animals and how they assist in therapy and interventions. As you just so wonderfully stated, they're kind of a neutral. So that you'd said a human ther therapist has limitations. So that's where the animal comes in. Give us an overview of some of the kinds of animals and why the animal and what kind of animal and what the basis of the ther how it begins. Molly, you want to jump in? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that what you're asking is how do non-human animals enhance um, therapy for people who have experienced trauma? Um, and they do that in a number of ways. Um, one of the biggest barriers to working with um, people who have experienced trauma, as Phil um, just discussed, is that they don't often don't trust people. And so oftentimes they're resistant to talking with a therapist or even coming to therapy at all. 
And so oftentimes staying in therapy and engaged in therapy can be a real challenge for people who have trauma histories. And so having an animal present during therapy um, has been shown to really facilitate the therapeutic alliance and the relationship between clients and therapists. So if a so, client is so seeing... How do, yeah, how does that work? The animal... I'm sorry to interrupt. The animal is no, that's fine. In, in the room you introduce. How does, how does the animal itself, its, its being, make this transition and connect the, um, sure. the, the, the patient, the client, and the therapist? Sure. So, yes, I mean, depending upon the species. Um, so, for instance, a dog could be in a traditional um, therapy room or setting. Um, if you're working with larger animals like horses, you could meet a client in an outdoor equine environment or a barn, um, which also has benefits in and of itself to be outside in nature, to be outside of a traditional treatment setting that may um, feel threatening or, or uncertain for certain clients. Um, but yes, so if you were in, let's say, a therapy room with a dog and the client was able to witness a really loving and affectionate relationship between the therapist and the dog, they may be able to subconsciously infer that this is how I will be treated by this therapist in, in therapy. I will be treated with kindness. If I make a mistake, this dog, you know, we're doing a training exercise. The dog didn't do, do the trick or the task that was asked of him. Um, and he was still treated with affection and love unconditionally. That can happen for me in this um, in this environment, and that makes clients feel safer, um, especially when they're discussing and disclosing things that are incredibly painful, like trauma experiences. So that's one way um, that they can do that is to be able to see a nurturing relationship between the therapist and the client, and why it's so important that that be present um, because besides not wanting to have any animal harm in a, in a session, it's also no therapeutic transfer can take place if an animal is not being treated well or is noticeably unwell, as Phil was talking about earlier. So it can also really help motivate clients to continue to come back, um, especially as they gain um, and form relationships with the animals that they're working with in therapy. So those are a few examples of how, how that works and how that helps facilitate the process so that progress um, can be made in therapy. So a lot of us are familiar with dogs being therapists in hospitals. And so what are some of the other animals? We've, we've mentioned horses. I've done horse-assisted horse therapy. A lot of it is about intention and being able to approach the animal. Do you work with that at all? And what are some of the other animals that make good therapists? There, there are two chapters in our book that uh, that um, persons interested in, in let's say the less traditional or, or non-traditional animals might find interesting. One is really a focus on humane education and just the importance of children's emotional development and their psychological development in relation to their connection to other animals. And this is a great chapter that's um, provided by our, our colleague Sarah Bexel, Dr. Sarah Bexel, and and some of her colleagues, and looking at the importance of this. And this is really a lifespan perspective, right, is that sometimes the earliest uh, friends and interests that children have are non-human animals. So we can begin developing resiliency in children and learning social skills and emotional regulation through connection with animals early in life. But we also have a wonderful chapter looking at therapeutic farm environment um, offered by our colleagues at Green Chimneys that looks at many different types 
of domestic farm animals. Now, one of the things we always, you know, want to emphasize is really the ethical question here. And it's, a, it's an ethics question and a moral question, but it's also a clinical question that if the animal's not enjoying or wanting or giving us permission to interact with it, then it's unlikely to be some, you know, the best therapeutic transfer. So domestic animals um, will will be are, are highlighted more frequently. It's one of the reasons dogs and cats and horses are the most common animals in these programs. But you know, Ellie, I think one of the uh, exciting implications here is that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only way we interact with animals. So our observation of of, of animals in the natural environment also provide therapeutic benefits, and it gives us um, reason to be interested in good conservation work, um, protecting habitat and, and having animals that are thriving, you know, in natural environments to, you know, to confront cruel and unnecessary and callous interaction with other um, animals is part, I think, of the message that we're trying to get out of this. And so, so there is a bigger story here, I think, to be to be told, but in general, we are, you know, when we look at structured uh, animal interactions, we're looking at animals that have familiarity with people. Okay, that was great. So we're going to step away uh, to a quick break here, and we've got a lot more to talk about. So we've just set the framework and the foundation for the rest of this conversation, so stick with us, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And hello, we're back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World with my guests, Philip Tedeschi and Molly Junkins from the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, uh, University of Denver, and their new book, Transforming Trauma and Resilience and Healing Through Connections with Animals. Our first section of today's program covered a lot of the modalities of the social scientist and what this... Uh, aspect of looking at one health is about. So now people are probably asking um, themselves, what happens to the therapy animal? So Molly, maybe you can help us understand some of the potential impacts to animals who provide trauma-informed services. Sure, absolutely. Well, this is um, definitely an area that is um, gaining increasing interest in the field is okay, we're looking at the impact of animal-assisted interventions for humans, um, but how is this impacting the animals that we work with? Um, And this was um, really a central theme of our book. It was something that Phil and I are both incredibly passionate about so that these animal-assisted interventions are not one-sided in favor of humans um, and that we're really considering the welfare and well-being and comfort of the animals that we really are asking to work with us through no choice of their own. Um, And so we have to, from an ethical and moral standpoint, have to ensure that their well-being is ensured, um, that it's being taken care of. Um, And so that was um, a central focus. We asked each of our contributors to speak about ways that we can ensure um, animal welfare in these various interventions that we do. Um, And it's especially pertinent in the area of trauma, because as you can imagine, when you're working with someone who has experienced trauma, um, the intervention may be chaotic, it may be unpredictable, it may be more difficult to safeguard your animal. And so we really wanted to challenge our readers to think, is it appropriate to be including an animal at all in these interventions. Yeah, so I think that it really depends. Um, It depends on the animal. It depends on the practitioner. It depends on the client. Um, If this animal-assisted intervention is indeed appropriate, Um, not every animal um, should be a therapy animal and not every person should be an animal-assisted therapist or interventionist. Um, Animal-assisted mental health practitioners really need to be well-versed and knowledgeable um, about their particular animal's behavior, um, signs of stress and affiliation. So they really have to attend to that while they're also working to help someone who's been traumatized work through their challenges. Um, So it's not an easy job, um, and it's definitely um, something that needs to be taken seriously if someone is wishing to work with an animal. Um, And Phil and I have often said this and spoken about this, but we often worry that, you know, if we are and if other scholars in the field are really successful in proving, quote unquote, that animal-assisted interventions are effective for people, we worry that the field could likely serve as another way to um, 
exploit animals for the purpose of our own needs. And we really want to be careful that that situation does not come to pass. Um, yeah, so that, that's, within the book, we've really argued for ethical standards and mandates in the field. Because this is a big topic, you know, as we talk about animal rights and animal welfare. And I know your colleagues with Mark Beckoff and a recent interview with Mark um, in Psychology Today, he asks you a few questions. And I've talked with Mark several times. And one of the things that comes up um, in my mind is when he had said to me, whenever he hears the words animal welfare, he says that's about humans about to do something bad for an animal and make it ex- acceptable. So kind of a, a greenwashing. So it's it's an important point because we're doing it, as Molly said, to the animals. So what are the impacts that you've found to animals. What what happens to them can help us understand how you treat the animal. Does your program cover that? Sure, sure. So, I mean, the research really in the field um, as it stands now is mixed. There are some studies that have found that stress in animals, and that can be measured physiologically through their salivary cortisol, for example. Um, it can also be measured by observing their behavior and looking for behavioral signs of stress or affiliation. Um, but the research as it currently stands as a whole is mixed, where some studies have found elevated stress in animals who participate in these interventions and others, including the one that I was on, um, did not find significant elevated stress, um, either physiologically or behaviorally, in therapy dogs who visited in my study with um, children who had cancer. So it's, it's difficult. I think that the potential, though, is certainly there, and um, that is why there needs to be strong ethical standards and mandates um, to make sure um, that handlers, whether they be professional therapists or handlers who are volunteers, um, really be trained um, and attend to their animal and almost put their animal's well-being ahead of any other objective, including improving human health during these sessions. So, um well, oh, yes. And also animals live more in the now. They don't get go through as much of the cognitive process of re chewing on our problems as we do in therapy. You know, we're so wrapped up and kind of our heads are are so internalized. One of the points I would think in working with animals is they keep things present. Definitely. I think that they, they really help, and this is, definitely has trauma applications, they definitely help clients um, ground to the present so they can be really a, um, a present-orienting focus for, let's say, clients who have trauma and are dissociating. Um, it can um, really bring them back to the moment so that they can refocus. Um, so definitely. Something that came to my mind as you were talking was um, that, you know, Currently, the way that we measure animal stress during these interventions is behaviorally and physiologically, but we also, we need to look at the whole animal. We need to, you know, expand upon how we're measuring stress um, in individual animals, Um, and that's something that feels, um, I I feel, is a direction that needs to go. I don't know exactly what those methods look like, but we need to beyond. In other words, kind of tracking this particular animal in, 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 let's say, just one isolated case, how that animal is responding over time to continued exposure to trauma 
therapy? Possibly that could be a direction. I mean, it depends on the individual animal, but I think we need to expand um, how we are evaluating stress in animals and um, it may go beyond um, looking only at physiological data or behavioral data. Such um, as? The whole animal. That's what I mean. I don't know exactly. I mean, I think we need to expand and look at um, their own trauma histories, where they came from, um, that, you know, wasn't done in my study, and I don't think it's commonly done. Um, we need to look at their individual temperament, um, their personalities, and how they typically respond to stress. Um, there has to be a more holistic view of the animal. So it could include knowing where this animal came from, a shelter versus someone who raised it as a, as a pup or a kitten or a foal. Sure, and then that can even help inform whether the animal is, is, is really a suitable choice to be um, in a therapy environment. You know, if the animal is not apt to seek um, contact or affection with a human, then that animal probably shouldn't be a therapy animal. So, that make, that yeah, makes it sense. just helps inform the whole process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you add, Phil? Well, I think, you know, I think Molly's covered a lot of really important points, training probably, you know, equipment that we use, um, training methodologies, all of those sorts of things are everyday lives of experiences of animals who are working. But I, I, I think one of the things I would do is just also have us frame or step back and recognize that one of the reasons this is such an important topic, Ellie, is that you know, it's really the, at the heart of this is that many people who have experienced trauma perceive animals as more genuine and more authentic and more trustworthy than people. And as a result, then they feel much better often in the presence of an animal. Now, you know, one of the, so, so you'll hear in the book one of the sentences or concepts that we use would be, what would it be like to be assigned to go live with a... Um, an individual with a drinking problem, with an anger problem, with a uh, with a suicidal ideation, or what's it like to be taken to a community that's experienced a school shooting and is has unconsolable grief, and your job is to help them feel better. Um, you know, in the context of really recognizing that individual animals have their own way of experiencing things, that they're sentient individuals not just species of animals that have this uniform response, that we have to at least consider the possibility that it's not a good idea, and, and, and for some animals it's a bad idea, and begin to much more thoroughly explore this idea and do much more systematic research into uh, how, how to do this in a way that fully supports the animal as a participant. And some of what we also know is that we routinely violate animals, um, you know, five freedoms by doing things like putting them in our car and going for a drive and then cranking the stereo, right? And we love the music and our dog's ears are, are aching at the end of the ride. So, you know, just in everyday ways in which we interact with animals at times, we forget that they're different species and have different needs and uh, different welfare needs than we do, and that this complexity of intervening into trauma is especially relevant for us to have that level of uh, sensitivity and now a new need, if we're going to do this work, to investigate it completely. And what are those five freedoms? 
Well, the five freedoms are a constant. Are you know are are um, routinely utilized in this particular area, and you know one of the things that I would um, mention. I'll just mention the the five. What the five freedoms are. Um, but we also highlight other areas as well. We also highlight a concept called the capabilities approach, which we believe has tremendous benefits for supporting animals in these areas and some other ideas. The five freedoms are freedom from thirst um, and hunger and nutrition, freedom from discomfort, freedom from pain, injury, and disease, freedom from fear and distress, and freedom to express normative behavior. So those are considered the five the, the five freedoms, and they're uh, frequently utilized now in this area. They were originated in you know at, in the advocation of welfare for farm animals, and are con- continue to be utilized in that context as well. Um, I think both Molly and I see these as minimum standards. Really, um, probably not not comprehensive enough. We probably would also want to add in a sixth freedom, things like. How do we, um, what's the freedom to end life in an ethical way as well? And we often don't have, have difficulty with that in, with our companion animals. So we might even add kind of end-of-life considerations or the freedom to die ethically as a, as a sixth freedom. For, for the animal and or as well for the human. Well, I think, you know, these are things that we routinely apply to, to human social justice and human, you know, kind of the human condition, uh, the capabilities model that was originally articulated by Marta Sen and, and Dr. Martha Nussbaum was a model that was applied and, and broadly utilized by the United Nations to evaluate human well-being. And at the heart of that really is a recognition that persons who are capable of thriving have to be able to use their capabilities. So this is was directed at a lot of things like gender discrimination and other forms of racial or, or religious discrimination. As we start to see it applied to animals, it's an interesting question of whether animals can actually use their own capabilities in their everyday lives. And, and companion animals um, and animals that are on a leash or in a harness or being placed in complex environments we have a special, you know, a special responsibility, I think, to try to understand how to support them when we're when we're asking them to work with us in these in these complex settings. That's a really interesting existential question, in a way, because um, it it kind of it not kind of it does combine everything you've been saying and what you'd said, Molly, about knowing the animal. And um, the more you know the animal, its behavior, and have lived with it and understand what makes it happy, we can usually tell when our animals are, especially dogs, cats are a little different, but, um, and horses, we can tell when our, our intention is um, communicating with them because they'll communicate back in terms of doing what we're sort of asking them to do. They do it because they want to and they understand what we've asked. So my other question would be, in these five freedoms, does the animal have the freedom to leave? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, um, you know, one of our contributors, Dr. Aubrey Fine, who focused with our colleague Anne Howie on a book on the, on the chapter related to canines, He's a psychologist who has routinely um, encouraged or advocated, even in the design of his own psychotherapy office, 
to have a place he works with his human clients that the animal can join him, but then can, uh, you know, on their own, uh, on their own accord, get up and move and leave the room and go to an, an alternative space. Um, we, you know, also know that the new work of people like um, Dr. Mark Beckoff in his um, new book, Unleashing Your Dog, really is exploring this concept of, you know, maybe the leash as the necessity for keeping an animal and others safe and supervising your animals, but then recognition that those tools also limit that animal's normative behavior, which allows them at times to have difficulty doing things like self-regulation. So we see more leash aggression, for example, uh, with dogs than when they're off leash. And so so we do need to be really interested in trying to understand uh, the species and the species-specific welfare considerations for animals that we're working with. This is fascinating. So uh, you wanted to add something, Molly? Oh, yeah. I was just going to add um, to something that Phil said as well, is that there's been research um, done that when therapy dogs are off-leash, let's say in a group therapy session, that their cortisol levels, which is their stress hormone, did did go down for animals that were off-leash as opposed to being on-leash, which in traditional animal-assisted therapy standards, you're supposed to usually keep your dog on-leash. So it's just a very interesting finding that could have real implications for practice in terms of um, animal welfare. I'm going to say dogs, as you know, are, are very, um, they're very attendant to um, human emotions and to human signs of stress, which is wonderful because I think that they can be great in therapy. But the, the risk there is that they can be incredibly sensitive to times when people are in pain and they can actually almost feel that pain themselves. And because they are so willing to please, usually especially trained therapy dogs, it can pose significant potential for stress in these, in these animals. So we're, we're talking about empathy. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's how I would characterize it. I think that they're incredibly sensitive. They've, you know, they've evolved and, and they've been domesticated to um, be very sensitive to our behavior and to our emotions. And I think that that can certainly have an impact on their own emotions and their own behaviors uh, because of that heightened sensitivity to us and to ours. So I have a, a curiosity question. You you say during the sessions you are measuring um, the well-being of the dog, and one of those uh, things is the the cortisol. How do you measure that during during a session? Is the dog hooked up to something, or how do you how do you know that? Yeah, that's a great question. So in our study, we collected um, salivary cortisol, and so. Before um, the dog's participation in the sessions even began, we collected a baseline measurement of saliva at five different points in their, in their day and then averaged that as their baseline, meaning this is where they're typically at on a normal day when they're not working. And we collected that by um, having the dog chew on a um, saliva swab um, for a number of minutes until we got enough saliva that we could send it off to a lab. And that sample was compared to um, similarly collected saliva samples that were taken from the dogs after sessions with patients um, to measure, is there a difference between where they are normally and then after they have been um, participants in sessions? Wow. 
This is so exciting. So um, we've we've talked about dogs. We've talked about horses. A friend of mine who does who's been doing animal assisted therapy for a long time in England, Dale Priest Kelly, and his is called Critterish All Sorts. He uses snakes, a skunk, a chinchilla, and I think an iguana. So what are some of the other animals that, through your studies, that you found to be um, good therapy animals? I mean, dogs, they interact. You know, they want cuddles and that kind of thing. A snake, we don't know really what makes a snake happy, usually, or a chinchilla. So what are some of the other animals that, that you've used that you find people are attracted to, or even those that people don't want to deal with at all? Well, I think I think one of the things we want to be careful about is using terminology like use, um, so that when persons okay. are selecting animals, so my it's, bad. it's kind of a, nit, a nitpicky point. And, and at times with my students, I talk about maybe that's actually a pretty useful term, or even an uh, honest, right, or accurate term, because maybe we are utilizing them for our human purposes. But I think at the heart of the question becomes a becomes really this this um, point, Ellie, that we're getting at, which is which animals are well suited, um, want to do this work. You know, can um, could, where we could even uh, submit a concept like consent to do this work alongside us, and where we know them well enough, uh, they know us well enough that they're socialized and or provided um, the supportive training to know what we're asking from them becomes really at the heart of the selection question. We're not super, uh, you know, super uh, big fans of uh, exotic animals or wild animals in part for that very reason, is that we believe that the possibility of, you know, not knowing the species of that animal well enough, the animal not having enough um, social experience or what sometimes we call evolutionary continuity of evolving alongside human beings to to really have those those interests. So many wild animals, the reason they take off and don't really want to be around us is that they haven't you know they haven't evolved around us. So, so they're they're scared of us, or they have hesitations about uh, being with us. We also want to ensure that we're not creating an industry where people capture animals um, or take animals um, out of their natural habitat. We've seen that happen in. Um, kind of misguided efforts to do this work in things like the dolphin-assisted therapy field, where we would really be opposed to seeing uh, captive dolphins and animals that really can't be kept properly. It's hard to keep marine animals healthy, for example. You know, so, so in general, I think we want to be, uh, be conservative about this, which brings us back to those animals that are domestic, have the most experience with, with people, and are, are most commonly found that um, found in those interactions. Now, if we look at that internationally or cross-culturally, one of the things that's very interesting, though, is we'll see animals like camels that are domesticated and, can, and now are being utilized in some therapeutic context, or other farm animals, goats and sheep and cows and chickens and uh, those sorts of animals that have some experience and can be quite connected to people. We see, for example, chickens um, being incorporated into animal therapy programs routinely now. So we want to be, I think, conservative and humble and recognize that we still have a lot to learn in this area and also then and really utilize what we know. 
you know, one of our our um, contributors, I, are they, as they refer to them as blurbers on the back of our book, uh, is uh, Dr. Patricia McConnell, one of the leading canine experts in this area. And the reason I bring her up is that some of her work has even shown that people in relation to their own dogs, dogs that we think we should know really well, that we might even live with, that we miss their calming signals all the time. So that even people who, you know, we, you know, might say should in fact know this often don't in relation to some of the animals we know the best. So I think we need to be really humble about this and, and, and that sort of thing. One, one mention, though, that I would like to, to frame, and maybe, Molly, you can help me kind of remember all of the opportunities that we've looked at here, but is the fact that, that animals in different cultures have different kind of cultural relevance. So even in communities where animals have not always played the exact same role, so in, in, as an example, in the United States, dogs are very popular, get birthday parties, get, I think the average dog gets nine gifts a year in the United States, something like that. Um, you know, in communities where dogs are not necessarily um, sleeping on people's beds and living with them in their homes are also being incorporated into therapeutic context, like a wonderful program we, we studied in Uganda that was working with street dogs and survivors of the Ugandan Civil War called the, um, called the Comfort Dog Project. So, so there's opportunities, I think, for, for us to look at this in many different contexts. This is so exciting. I mean, there's the existential point, and when when you say some things like does getting the dog's permission, the animal's permission, and a paw print on the X line for a signature, um, right. it, it's really complex and convoluted, and it's very exciting to see how many rabbit holes there are, and that you're actually looking at them all. It's it, it's it's tremendously exciting. So I strongly urge our listeners to visit the um, IHAC I H A C Institute for Human Animal Connection website and go to uh, the various uh, navigations, their education and programs, and their global initiatives and their research and their resources because they cover a lot of issues issues between people, animals, and the environment. A whole lot more information on the One Health initiative and then also more background uh, on the specific issues we talked about today and pick up the book Transforming Trauma and uh, it's going to be a fabulous read. It's definitely worthwhile because it's really um, crossing into new avenues and breaking some old boundaries. So uh, unfortunately, we're out of time today. Um, This has been incredibly exciting, and I'd love to talk more. Um, So any final takeaway? I just want to say thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk about these issues in depth and to really reflect on this labor of love that Phil and I have been working on um, for the past three or so years. So it was great to talk with you today. And yeah, I would love to keep the conversation flowing. Great. Well, I have to read the book and I would love to talk to you more because (laughs) even after this, I need to read my notes because there's so many um, further conversations I can see. And uh, Phil, what's what's your takeaway for today? 
Well, I, I think my takeaway, you know, is for people to think about the animals that they live with each and every day. You know, the, probably the biggest story of the therapeutic, you know, the dimensions of the therapeutic benefits that we can gain from our relationship with our animals is happening in our own homes every day on the on the scale of many millions and millions of people and 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 many interactions. So think about those animals in your home. Think about their well-being. You're taking good care of them will provide you kind of optimum, the optimum healthy relationship with them. So and it's I a can, real opportunity. I can attest to that. I have five cats, and I oh, often right. remind myself that I can change everything in a second by not talking about me to them and just talking about them and how wonderful they are and take that time. And that switches everything, as we've been talking about today, into the present and the now. And you can change things on a dime, so to speak. So I want to thank you both so much for your time today. And um, we're going to carry this subject on. So meanwhile, listeners, um, take a look at your own household, your own pets and step out into our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 